Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This episode of the GabFest contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for December 12, 2019, the Crossfire Hurricane Edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C., just down the street from Congress, where the House Judiciary Committee is, even as we start the tape, is debating amendments to the articles of impeachment. Joining me from New York City and the studios of CBS Radio is John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes. Hello, John. Hello and welcome. Uh, I think I say welcome, but that's okay. I know. I know. I'm, I'm, it's a general welcoming. John was being beneficent. From the campus of Yale University, the hardest working person <laughs> in journalism, <laughs> Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. David is making up for an earlier description of me, which perhaps we will play at the very end. On today's GabFest, the House files and debates articles of impeachment against the president. What is going to happen? What will happen if he's impeached? And is this a wise political move? Then the FBI's inspector general finds no partisan motivation or witch hunt in the 2016 FBI investigation of President Trump, but plenty of FBI incompetence, misbehavior, corner cutting. We will discuss And then the Washington Post gets hold of a huge trove of confidential documents about the Afghanistan war. Is this a new Pentagon Papers? Will this change the course of that endless war? Plus, we will, of course, have cocktail chatter. This morning, the House Judiciary Committee is starting its debate over two articles of impeachment that House Democrats are leveling against President Trump. One regarding his abuse of power and attempting to blackmail the Ukrainian government into investigating Joe Biden forcing them to launch or actually announce an investigation as a as a chit in order to get military aid that Congress had authorized actually delivered to them. The other article regarding his constant obstruction of Congress's attempt to investigate him over this attempt to blackmail the Ukrainian government. There will be significant debate today, a Thursday, over these articles, and they are expected to then be voted on in a party line vote. Uh, with the House Judiciary Committee passing these articles, and they, they will then go on to the full Congress where they'll be voted on next week. And if again, if those articles pass, the president will have been impeached by the House and will then face a trial in the Senate. So, Emily, why don't you start us off by explaining maybe what the two articles, which will probably not be amended, Democrats will probably quash any amendments. So the two articles as written, what what are they basically saying? The first one is about Trump's abuse of power, and the second one is about his obstruction of Congress. So abuse of power relating to the Ukraine affair, uh, the idea here is that Trump 
corruptly solicited foreign interference in the 2020 election with all the Ukraine shenanigans involving the pressure campaign trying to get President Zelensky to open an investigation or at least an announce an investigation into the Bidens and also uh, pursuing Trump's unfounded theory that it was Ukraine, not Russia, that meddled in the 2016 elections. So that's the substance of that one. Obstruction of Congress is about all the ways in which the administration has refused to cooperate and comply with congressional subpoenas. And so the point here is that rather than uh, contest particular lines of questioning or particular requests for evidence, the administration has just issued these blanket refusals to cooperate in any way with the impeachment inquiry. And Congress is correctly saying that this is unprecedented. And the sort of underlying debate about these articles of impeachment is whether it was uh, smart or mistaken to only do two. There were up to the last minute debates within Congress about whether to also include an article of impeachment about Trump's emoluments violations, the idea that he's been raking in money from foreign governments at the Trump Hotel and other places. And then this question of whether there was anything to salvage from the Mueller investigation there was a, I thought, sharp piece in, I mean, sharp in a good way, piece in Lawfare by Susan Hennessy arguing that if nothing else, Congress should have included an article about Trump's effort to get former White House counsel Don McGahn to falsify the record about uh, McGahn, Trump's request to McGahn to fire um, Mueller. Mueller. Yeah. So Trump apparently said to McGahn, can you go fire Mueller? And McGahn said, no, I'm going to resign before I do that. And then later, apparently, Trump, uh, or maybe I should use the word allegedly, Trump went back to McGahn and said, can you falsify the record so that we can cover up that I ever asked you to do that? So Susan Hennessy was arguing, like, if nothing else, that is a clear crime to order a falsification of evidence, and the Democrats should have included that. But they didn't. They want the narrative to be clean and focused on Ukraine, and so that's where we are. I just want to interject briefly about Don McGahn. Um, You know, there was this debate about whether staffers should ignore the president or not. Don McGahn, by ignoring the president, probably helped him keep his job. Carry on. Yes, of, of totally course. The, good the, point. the staffers ignore the president when he gives them orders. They don't ignore him when he tells them not to testify. When he tells them not to testify, they obey slavishly and they don't show up to testify. But that's another point. So there's a school of thought, John, and Jamel Bowie of the New York Times has articulated this repeatedly, including on the Gabfest uh, over Thanksgiving, that Democrats should drag this investigation, this impeachment out, and that they should have kept the investigation open and vast and wide, given the scale of the president's misdeeds and corruption. Because it really is, I mean, there, it, the two things that are articulated here are certainly, if, if proven and if if the case is made, they are certainly impeachable and, and, you know, by my lights, something that makes him unfit to be president. But there's a ton of other stuff, Emily, are mentioned a couple of them. There's the constant lying. There's the obstruction of justice <laughs> yeah, in, the, in the Mueller. So so what's the reason to what's the reason to keep this concise, tight, fast? So the reason is you've got a ha- you want to keep control of the House. You've got a number of uh, members of the House who are in districts where there is either skepticism about impeachment or uh, there is uh, there are voters who care about 
my about how much of the public conversation is taken up by impeachment. They'd rather be hearing, and those Democrats running those districts would would rather be talking about something else. And to the extent that impeachment is the constant headline, they will every day have to figure out how to get around impeachment to show voters they care about things that affect them in their lives. I guess in the underlying theory, I think it relies on the idea that um, – that having an impeachment process kicks up either a new information that will get through the already uh, the views people already have about Donald Trump and that impeachment has some special is some special venue for that that seems to me a hard case to make it seems to me that that people are basically they have their their views about Donald Trump and if you're a democrat you want to excite their most negative views as close to the moment they make their voting decision as possible i don't know that impeachment is the venue through which you do that i think that president trump uh, excites those people's negative feelings about him through his own behavior, um, I think that that an impeachment process and testimony and members of Congress um, talking about his behavior is less effective. And I think there's been no evidence. Certainly, there was no. Certainly, in 2018, this was the case. There's no evidence that Donald Trump is going to stop providing people who um, are unhappy with him or are susceptible to being unhappy with him. He's going to keep providing that information, whether uh, impeachment happens or not. And he might do it in a more powerful or colorful form. So is the argument there, then the argument is we do it because it is our civic constitutional yes. duty to do it. We do it briskly because like, because it's just, it gets too complicated to, it, it becomes too encompassing if we don't do it briskly. And we can count on the president insofar as our goal is to, to win this election and to have anti-Trump sentiment motivate voters. Trump will do a fine job of doing that on his own. Is that- I, I think you've articulated perfectly, and just I want to put a fine point on what we talked about last week, which is it is absolutely the House's duty to put all of this down in writing as as they see it and have people take up or down votes on specific behavior, go all the way back to the Constitution, show the way in which this is what's at issue here is is at the central question of the presidency as it was conceived. Will the president act in his own interest or in the country's interest? That is the big casino in all presidential behavior. So now, whether it's been proved or not is a separate question. But whether it's a legitimate area of inquiry, there is no more legitimate area of inquiry if you look at the way they thought about the presidency. So you want to get all that down in writing for sure. And then the political question for impeachment, it seems to me, is do you as a, as a partisan get the maximum benefit from tonnage or simplicity? Is simplicity of narrative, uh, you know, president asked for a favor, shouldn't have done that? Or is it emoluments, Mueller knew about WikiLeaks but lied about it, told his lawyer to go fire Mueller but didn't, uh, you know, all the rest. And, and I, that's, it seems to me, where the, the political question is. The Democrats kind of flicked it, the pattern of misbehavior in a kind of like introductory paragraph, right? So they didn't leave it out entirely. But, you know, the argument against narrow isn't, I don't think it's, a, well, I guess Jamel's making a political argument. There's also just a like right side of history argument that you don't want to appear to have condoned or let slide all this other behavior. Emily, can you imagine a current Washington, not a, fanta- fan- a fantasy Washington of Joe Biden and John McCain and 
and Tip O'Neill all knocking back drinks. A real Washington where any impeachment could be carried out fairly and with integrity. Because I cannot. Well, and I do think you the mean result that the that, Democrats that, are being unfair to President Trump? Or do you mean that you no. can't imagine the Republicans looking at this in an objective fashion? I cannot imagine. I cannot. The Republican Party appears to me have gone to have gone so far off the edge that they there nothing. I mean, the president's behavior by any previously articulated standard that any member of Congress has has subscribed to is so far outside the bounds, is so far, is so outrageous that you just can't even imagine uh, that, that, that for them not to like take seriously impeachment now means that they they simply could not take any impeachment seriously. I mean, that literally, if this is not, if what's happening with President Trump is not does not rise to some level of impeachment worthy consideration of impeachment, then for Republicans, nothing will ever do it. And I think the the Democrats may find themselves in the same position, which is that because of how Republicans have responded over Trump, that presumably the next Democratic president, if there's a Republican House, there's going to be some version of this that's going to happen as well. We've reached this stage of partisan warfare. And I don't think Democrats I don't think Democrats are in a mood to act with integrity either. I think that this as a process has now collapsed fully into partisanship. And the and the conclusion from that is, is that we have an imperial presidency. Because if a president cannot be removed from office by impeachment, and I think th- that there's an argument now that it's impossible because we're never going to have big enough majorities in the Senate. If a president cannot be removed from power by impeachment, and a president can with impunity refuse court orders, refuse congressional demands, then the president is therefore able to do essentially whatever the president wants to do. So if impeachment doesn't work, then the whole system becomes an executive dictatorship. That's my distinct worry. And I and I just don't see where the ability of Congress to act with integrity is going to come, come from because it, it appears to have vanished. Maybe I'm being too pessimistic. Well, I see why you're concerned about that. I mean, I don't think that we're quite there yet looking forward, though I mostly agree with you about the present. I mean, you know, John said earlier, like, it's not clear whether these facts against Trump have been proved. I don't know. I feel like it's pretty clear. If you connect the dots of the testimony, there's strong proof that— They haven't had the venue in which to do that. They haven't had a trial yet. Right. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it just looks from the testimony like a pretty damning case to me, just like looking at this question. Then you have, I think, a separate issue about whether this rises to the level of conduct that demands impeachment. Then we're in a universe that's more parallel to the Bill Clinton impeachment, in which it was also clear that Clinton had you know, lied under oath. And then the issue was whether in the context of, you know, the Monica Lewinsky affair, um, this more private behavior of the presidents that seemed to rise to the level of conduct necessary to impeach the president. Uh, Congress said no, but you could have imagined a different answer to that. And when you look at that parallel, that seems to me like some evidence, you know, Democrats really, really resisted drawing that conclusion. I think you can make a principled defense. You can also argue that like lying under oath was a big deal at the time and that maybe that was a mistake if you're thinking about this problem of impeachment being a real remedy and the threat of the imperial presidency. The reason I don't think we're there yet is that well, first of all, we don't have an answer from the Supreme Court about presidential resistance of this kind to the power of Congress to investigate. Now, I mean, I think one of the reasons Democrats aren't pushing that is that they don't want this conservative Supreme Court to answer the question. 
And another is just this problem of delay that has come to plague these court proceedings. It's still possible, though, that the Supreme Court would back up the decision it made in United States versus Nixon that was unanimous in 1974 that, you know, was so important in precipitating Nixon's resignation. So, like, let's not give up on the third branch since we haven't even really heard from them yet this time around. Oh, I've given up not, on the third branch. <laughs> not John, comforting do you, to you. I, do you think <clears throat> impeachment is impeachment and removal is possible anymore? Well, I think if you had, um, I, I mean, remember in Nixon's case, what sunk him was the way you actually had actual recordings. Now, I think you would have, based on the motivated reasoning we see in this instance, I think you would even have people saying, insane things, even if there was a recording of the president saying something. And in, in part, what leads me to believe that is you have people, um, Congressman Sensenbrenner, who is the ranking member on the Judiciary Committee, uh, complaining about um, about how the president uh, isn't being given a fair, a fair trial. Sensenbrenner knows, because he was chairman of the committee when they impeached Bill Clinton, he knows that this is not a trial. And he knows that that language has specific meaning. So for him to use that language is um, is more than just sloppiness. There have been a number of instances here when, even when this whole thing was started, uh, when Kevin McCarthy, um, the Republican leader, talked about uh, Democrats making up the rules for impeachment. Well, that's the way it goes. That's what happens with impeachment. The majority gets to make up the rules. So when you claim that the, the rules as they stand are somehow a, a contravention of the rules, you're, you're, acting, you're not acting in good faith. So if, if that's the motivated reasoning that goes on, then you can imagine even if there was a, a recording, you would have people saying things that aren't so. I, what I guess what, what puzzles me is, you know, uh, Mario Loyola uh, writes in the Atlantic a piece about how the Democrats have not proved uh, impeachment. Polls do show that 70% of the country think that, thinks the president did something wrong, which suggests that either the president has proved it through his behavior or Democrats have proved it in the case they're making. Now, the difference, the, the next question is, okay, he did something wrong, but is that impeachable? Um, and what seems complicated here for a Republican is I think there are, uh, there are a number of Republicans who think he did something wrong, but an election is coming. Uh, let's not use this severe sanction when it can be figured out by the voters. But, but not all of them want to say that out loud because the minute you say that out loud, then the follow-up question is, well, wait a minute. If you think he did something wrong, what did he do wrong? And if the thing he did wrong was use his office for his own personal gain, then isn't that like textbook impeachable inf- uh, abuse of power? Yeah. And so then you're, you, it seems to me you've backed yourself into a bad place. And I'm still waiting to see, I mean, what we've seen now is an effective um, effort by uh, the president's defenders to basically just confuse the issue, talk about process, um, uh, use the Democrats' political pickle to kind of put them in a corner um, uh, by kind of stringing this out and all, and all of that. But I... Um, I wonder what some of those Republicans are going to do when they have to kind of say what their ultimate position is on what the president did. Uh, and and I don't know, we've still yet to kind of see that. In I mean, isn't the best defense of Trump that, okay, he tried to abuse his power for his personal gain but didn't work and he pulled back at the last minute? The problem with that defense is that the only reason he pulled back was he was being exposed and, again, government officials around him kind of saved him from his own actions. But I feel like that's the if I was a Republican senator and I wanted to vote against removal, that's where I would land. 
Yeah, I think you're. I think you're. You're probably right, and I think you could say, "Look, and the people have a chance to make this decision, uh, and let's not use impeachment lightly because of what, in fact, David said, which is that then we get, you know, impeachment comes with every new presidency uh, because we've downgraded the the sanction. I think you're probably. I think that's probably right. Yeah. The problem with though, I mean, I agree they'll say that, but the problem with that is that elections obviously are not just about. Ukraine, Like they're not just about these right. two articles of impeachment. They're about gazillion other things. And so it's just a very blunt instrument for addressing presidential abuse of power and misconduct. Emily, the reporting this week suggests the Senate is going to have a pretty quick trial. There's been there's a sense that the president wants it to be histrionic and with lots of witnesses and long and drawn out, although I'm not really sure why, except that he I guess he loves the chaos. Uh, and that Mitch McConnell seems to be leaning towards doing something very, very fast maybe with no witnesses at all. Uh, what do you think the what do you think this trial is going to look like and and how do you think the Democrats who are running for president who are going to be jurors in this trial should conduct themselves? I think McConnell's probably going to prevail. The big question in my mind is whether they try to call Joe or Hunter Biden and make it a political spectacle in that regard, which I think Trump's base and Fox News would just absolutely love. And then in terms of the Democratic senators, I think they should be proper and sober and weighing the evidence and behaving like jurors, like their job, not in a way that is politically grandstanding. I don't even think they're going to have to grandstand to be able to be condemning toward the president unless some magical defense appears at the last minute that we don't know about. Listeners, remember, we have our annual conundrum show coming up next week live at the Fox Theater in Oakland, California, December 18th, Wednesday night. We are going to be conundruming our little tushes off. It's going to be fantastic. We have so many great questions. We are so excited to see you live. There's still some tickets left. Slate.com slash live for tickets. Again, December 18th at the Fox Theater in Oakland. And we have a fantastic special guest. Adam Savage of Mythbusters is going to be busting conundrums left and right with us. Join us. Slate.com slash live to come Here's a quick aside to remind you that your holiday shopping doesn't have to be too hard because Slate has an online gift shop. You can order a pair of our dazzling fuchsia Slate socks, which I have and I wore yesterday and indeed are dazzling. My eyes are blown out by them or an ultra comfy hoodie featuring the Slate asterisk. And now through December 25th, Slate is offering 15% off using code Slate15 at shop.slate.com. That's shop.slate.com. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better with unlimited storage and an easy to use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. 
GabFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Department of Justice Inspector General Michael Horowitz issued a 434-page report this week that reached two conclusions. First, the FBI's investigation into Russian interference in the election and the Trump campaign's involvement with that Russian interference, known as Operation Crossfire Hurricane, which is incidentally the most OK Boomer name for an FBI operation you can possibly imagine. OK Boomer was invented to be hurled at, at Operation Crossfire Hurricane. But that that investigation was properly predicated. That is, it was not based on some kind of partisan witch hunt by the Obama administration, but it was based on the evidence that the FBI saw and was a reasonable premise for the investigation to take place. And second, Horowitz concluded that the FBI was alarmingly loosey-goosey about certain aspects of the investigation, notably, notably in the way that it broke rules in order to win approval of a FISA warrant on Trump advisor Carter Page and then to re renew that warrant a couple of times. Um, so, Emily, Attorney General Bill Barr and John Durham, who's a prosecutor who is doing another investigation at Barr's behest, basically the same investigation at Barr's behest, immediately denounced the conclusion of Horowitz's, Horowitz's investigation. Durham's report will presumably reach the conclusion that the FBI was politically motivated. So what do we as citizens do with these competing narratives where you get to live in your own factual world in one world? This was a properly predicated investigation. In the other, it was a politically motivated investigation. And just you watch Fox News. I'll watch MSNBC. You live in your world. I'll live in mine. Yeah. So I there's, I wish I had like the biggest magic marker in the world to draw a really thick line between the two lessons of the Horowitz report. In the world of uh, Donald Trump is the president and we're talking about politics, what matters is that, yes, there was a sound predicate, a sound basis for opening this investigation. There was political opinion expressed by FBI agents on both sides. We have heard a ton about 
the FBI agents who were worried about Trump being elected. Now we have evidence that FBI agents were also totally thrilled that Trump was being elected. What Horowitz found was that these opinions did not mean that the FBI was doing something politically biased. The agents cared about who won the election. They were also doing their job separately from that. That makes total sense to me. I think it would be better optics-wise if FBI agents stopped texting about their political opinions about who should be the president. But I completely imagine that they could set aside that um, desire and do their jobs properly because that's what they're trained to do. And so in my mind, the response that Attorney General Barr and uh, John Durham, the prosecutors in charge of this criminal inquiry that Barr is, is uh, launching into these very same questions. I think it's reprehensible and really problematic for the Justice Department to be using its microphone in this really politicized, weaponized way. And I really wonder what is going to happen when John Durham comes back with presumably some damning report about the FBI, perhaps even criminal charges against officials who the inspector general has effectively cleared. And I especially wonder about this in the context of Christopher Ray, the FBI director. He gave a factually sound, reality-based reaction to the inspector general's report, said he accepted it, said there were lots of problems to address at the FBI with their procedures for getting FISA applications, which I want to talk about. That's the other side of my black magic marker line. But he was, like, giving a reality-based, like, Norman, normal government official response. And Trump's response to Ray, of course, was to denounce him. So, if Durham and Barr want to criminally charge FBI officials or other people of the Justice Department and Christopher Wray is still FBI director, like, then what? I mean, where are we going to be when we have that kind of eventuality? Or are Barr and Durham just going to spin this investigation out endlessly past the election so that Trump can keep pointing at it as his vindication as he has done with so many other um, trotted out moments that he's claimed we're going to have some big revelation that damns all his enemies and exonerates him, and then it just never comes. The way to, people should not be confused about this as as competing views is not to frame it as that way. I mean, here you had somebody who produced a 400-page report who did all of the uh, work and provided the evidence to come to a set of conclusions, and Barr didn't give any evidence for his the position he held. And it seems to me that he owes... As somebody who's not the president's lawyer but is the attorney general, he owes some professional restraint to the IG. He may privately disagree with the findings, uh, and Durham might too. But unless they're going to come with evidence to do it in the way they did, seems just super irregular and also as a part of a larger effort to kind of throw all truth up in the air. But I would like to hear what you guys think, because for years um, you were skeptical of the FISA courts, of the standards of evidence, of the fact that basically, as they say about indictments, you know, you can indict a ham sandwich, um, that there really were no checks on anybody seeking a FISA warrant. And we had the numbers to suggest that was the case. But now we have detail after detail after detail how I thought, particularly in the Carter Page context, Page, who played, didn't play a very big role in the in the Mueller report, 
but who played a big role in the public debate about um, how this was all being carried out. The FBI sure did hide a bunch of exculpatory evidence, um, pumped up evidence that was um, to make it look bad, left out the fact that he was that, that Page, who was meeting with Russian officials, was then advising the CIA on what took place in those meetings. That seems to be a real abuse, regardless of how this whole thing started. Yeah, I mean, this is the other side of my line. If you're thinking about FISA applications from the point of view of civil liberties, like the long-running ACLU critique of the FISA court, it's that it's secret. It allows for all the surveillance. You don't – once you're in, like, you could be a terrorist suspect land um, or, like, a threat to national security, you don't know you're being surveyed. And even worse, you never get the application afterward. It's all secret. And I think what we're seeing here is the danger of shrouding law enforcement tactics in utter secrecy because the FISA court, like you said, has approved basically rubber stamped almost every single application. And what we're seeing here when you actually look under the rock is that the FBI is somewhere between sloppy and incompetent or just indifferent to actually doing this in any kind of fair way. I mean, the particular fact about the Carter Page FISA application that just floored me was that he had been giving information to the CIA for years, and they just left that out. I mean, this is the part that a government lawyer actually falsified in an email and could be criminally charged for. But just think about that. This guy who our government is surveilling without his knowledge or really hardly any check on that power turns out was like an intelligence asset for another agency and the FBI just hid that information from the FISA court. That's that's really bad. We should care about fixing those problems and we should really do something about the level of secrecy in these FISA proceedings. So not only I mean it's the with that page point, I mean just to 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 spin it back to what John said, it's that the the fact that he was doing the CIA's work was what allowed the, the FBI to gin up suspicion about him that justified the warrant. <laughs> so it wasn't just that they ignored it. It was that the actual work was a was was the predicate for the, the warrant itself, which is outrageous. But um, I, I've always assumed, I mean, I, I, that the FBI has been playing fast and loose with FISA stuff for years because any legal proceeding, which there's only one side, like, I mean, even legal proceedings where there are two sides, the prosecutor's are constantly engaged in chicanery, but in one side where it's secret and there's there's kind of no there's no uh, opponent. If you you knew that they were doing stuff that was shady. The question I had about that, Emily, is that one, and maybe I misunderstand the FISA process, but one thing that I think would go a long way towards fixing it is you. It's very clear why the target cannot have an attorney in the FISA process because the target doesn't know their target. Like, how can somebody represent? You know, if you're Carter Page, you don't know you're about to be secretly surveilled, so you can't hire an attorney to tell them not to secretly surveil you. That would go against it. But why doesn't why doesn't the court have something basically a devil's advocate, someone whose job it is to mm. represent the interests of the surveilled person and to be the antagonist in that process? Because now we're relying on the judges to be the antagonist, the judges to weigh and question the evidence. Why isn't there a counselor whose job it is to essentially say? My, my client cannot be here because my client does not know they're being surveilled. And I understand that. And I'm never going to tell anything about that. I'm properly vetted. I've passed all security clearances. But I'm going to look at this evidence you're presenting here. And I get evidentiary rights. And I can question it. And I can 
and poke holes in it, and then the court can make a decision about it. I mean, Why I think is that that's a great idea to have some kind of adversarial process within FISA proceedings. The reason mm-hmm. that it doesn't exist is it's not in the statute, which does not mean that that's like a good reason and that you are not like smart to be thinking of that as one solution to this problem. I mean, the other thing is whether defendants should at least have after the fact uh, access to these applications and records similar to the way that defendants do in criminal proceedings. And maybe there's a way to do make do both of those reforms. I, mean, I also just want to point out that in 2018, there were 1,833 targets of FISA um, orders, including 232 Americans. So we're not we're focusing on this problem because of Carter Page, but it's actually like a much bigger problem that civil libertarians have been worrying about for years and that, you know, a lot of people who kind of defend the uh, establishment of the national security apparatus post 9-11 that have been saying like, oh, don't worry about this. You know, the Justice Department is on its best behavior. They have all kinds of reasons to make sure they're doing this properly. But in fact, like we know that the FISA court in 2018 only rejected one FISA application. And we can see here what Out happens. of 1,800? It was actually out of 1,080 requests in 2018. One at – holy moly, for holy. Yes. As according to government records, the court fully denied only one. Wow. Wow. And, you know, when the arguments that you guys were making about FISA and many others were making was, I think, implicit in them or even you, were, you may have been making them explicitly, which is if you – if you let the elasticity in your sweatpants expand, ultimately it loses all shape and power only encourages you to, to use more power. And so you could make the case that the FBI got so sloppy because it was just encouraged to be sloppy because no one was ever watching. This is in fact so, and now many of the people who are defending the president supported the looseness of the FISA system before when it was when it was thought of as something that basically allowed law enforcement to to have the tools to fight terrorists that that looseness that it encouraged has now hurt somebody that they would like to defend this though is a cousin to the argument basically the democrats are making about the president is that his behavior represents a pattern and an escalating comfort with the use of power against norms and practices and that what happens when you do that is you don't stop doing it. Power just gets more hungry, and you keep using it, and you keep blowing through, and you and you end up accumulating an aggregate amount of abuses when you do this over time. So actually, there's a related way in which uh, these are connected. I want to point out one um, hypocrisy, which really irritates me. We have in Bill Barr, Bill Barr has, and and the president himself have been unloading on the FBI and just attacking the the agency attacking agents attacking the leadership of it talking about the the president the president's case and the president's allies talking about the deep state a lot and the sort of questioning their competence and the president of course has also done this with all the national security agencies and the fine people who work there on the one hand and on the other hand Barr recently gave a speech in which he talked about how communities where police weren't adequately supported might not get policed. That in fact, if you if you're in a community and you you maybe there's a Black Lives Matter protest in that community, uh, maybe the cops won't be do such a good job protecting that community because the cops won't feel they're getting support. And the hypocrisy and wrongheadedness of Barr 
on the one hand, completely undermining the people who work for the FBI and and attacking their integrity, and the, these agents, these law enforcement agents. And on the other hand, the the idea that anyone who would attack the integrity of cops or attack the integrity of any local police investigation does not deserve police protection just irritates me, just registering that. There's a way in which Bill Barr is like emerging as the kind of Dick Cheney slash Donald Rumsfeld figure of the Trump administration. And part of it is that when you have a president who doesn't seem super crafty and skillful, which I think was true about our image of George Bush and our image of Donald Trump, you imagine some puppeteer behind the scenes who's kind of pulling the strings. And we're kind of headed in that direction with what we're learning about Bill Barr. And then I think also there's just the notion of having the attorney general, the chief law enforcement official in the country, so willing to turn the might of the department into a weapon that he's using on behalf of Trump personally. Now, I mean, given Bill Barr's utter devotion to the power of the presidency and his belief that it's under assault, which is another thing he's been talking about in speeches, I think that Barr feels like he's defending the office, but the holder of the office is Donald Trump. He's the one benefiting from it. And so he Barr has just emerged as this important and fascinating figure in all of this. Adjacent to what you're saying, or maybe just picking up on your second point, and I know you weren't saying this, but the distinction, of course, is that Cheney didn't have those obligations that you just uh, pointed right. out about Barr. You know, and he does, it seems to me, have, particularly in this moment, and this is why it strikes me that he that he did owe the, uh, the IG some professional restraint. Because the IG, as I understand it, talked to Durham. He uh, incorporated yes. their skepticism about his ultimate findings about the predi- whether the investigation was predicated uh, fairly or not. He heard them out and then drew, you know, came to his conclusion. So it's a matter of that is up for debate as opposed to the IG Horowitz, uh, you know, going off in some crazy notion. But so when it's a matter for debate to rush in and say, well, I disagree without providing evidence raises these big questions and throws the weight of the attorney general, essentially the whole weight of the institution puts a big question mark up there. And in this time of constant question marking, which is no good for the justice system just in general, it seems to me there is some obligation for the attorney general to kind of bolster the idea that facts and a 400-page report has some standing, has some weight. To not stick with that obligation at some level seems a, a, a real break with, with what the responsibilities of the job are. GabFest listeners, you get bonus segments on our podcast, other Slate podcasts. If you go to slate.com slash GabFest plus, you can become a member today. Today, we're going to talk about anti-Semitism, or maybe it's the philo-anti-Semitism, or the anti-philo-Semitism, or the anti-anti-Semitism of the Trump presidency. Just the weird, weird nature relationship of the Trump presidency and Jews. So go to slate.com slash plus Join today. In perhaps the most obvious example of a no-clothes emperor situation that I can remember, the Washington Post this week published the Afghanistan Papers which is a collection of thousands of pages of documents comprising what are called lessons learned interviews that were done secretly by certain government agencies and also memos from former Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld all about the war that never ends, never will end in Afghanistan. 
The Post won these papers with very dogged and very expensive reporting and litigation. And let us note that the government behaved abominably, hid stuff it shouldn't have been hiding, forced the Post to spend tons of money on legal fees that it shouldn't have had to spend. And let us give great credit to Craig Whitlock, the reporter, who did such hard work to get this these papers. And give great credit to the product, which reveals the wasteful, pointless, ill-conceived nature of a war that, that has been going on now for 18 years. 18 years. 18 years. Incredible. So the primary conclusion of the Afghanistan papers is that $2 trillion, if you add, if you go all in on what, what these wars have cost, this war has cost, and thousands of lives lost, Americans and others, many more thousands of Afghan lives, and there is literally nothing to show for it, and that we have a government that has consistently lied about numbers, not known numbers, didn't have accurate numbers, spent wastefully, didn't know who was on their side, had no consensus on the war's objectives or how to achieve those objectives, and careened from strategy to strategy under different presidents and different generals. And really, it's just been a complete, complete and utter waste, which I think any person, any person who kind of honestly looked at it, any person who's been alive during that period and looked at it would have said, yeah, that's pretty clear. This is this country is a mess and we have not really oh. done anything. John, you're about to interrupt me. Interrupt. I, I was with you until I was with you. But because my my uh, what makes this so powerful to me is that there was a period where Afghanistan was the good war. Right. It was referred to by Democrats and Republicans alike as the way you're supposed to do it. So that's that's the only that's for like the only three reason I spoke up because right. no 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 not for like three months for much longer than that there was you know Barack Obama uh, when he opposed the the war in in Iraq said favorable things about Afghanistan that's what makes this even even more powerful is that it's an eighteen year mistake that goes across both administrations and not just the administrations who kind of had it in their lap once they, which is to say the Obama administration, you know, had it in their lap and had to deal with it. That has a certain set of complexities. But even before that was happening and even people who didn't have responsibility for the policy were sort of treating Afghanistan as if it were – you know, the the well-carried-out operation. And I don't know whether that's because they were they were being uh, untruthful or they were just accepting the, the facts that we now know from this were totally, you know, rosied up from the start. What's astonishing is that everyone... So there was a, an interesting and probably useful good premise for the war initially. I mean, that's where al-Qaeda was. That's where Osama bin Laden was. That's where the 9-11 attacks were planned. That's And the Taliban was a very bad government and they had sheltered they had sheltered these folks who attacked the united states so there is a good premise for what the the war why the war is being fought but once the kind of initial victories are won there was really no idea about what to do next and all you needed to do is look at history and the history was the british in afghanistan in the 19th century just completely getting walloped and driven out of there and slaughtered and not being able to conquer it and not being able to occupy it not being able to have it and the russians just the decade or two ago having more or less the same thing happen to them we are like remember how when we were kids in the early 80s and how it was kind of gleefully americans talked about the afghanistan war that the russians were in and how like look at them being humiliated by the the, these tribal uh, guerrilla fighters, and we—it was—it was really we we celebrated it. It was yeah, American it was part of our Cold War we, mentality. That's what we are. We're that, except we've been there twice as long, three times as long, 
and and, and spent, spent more than two trillion ten times dollars. as much money. Yeah, and I mean, killed a lot of people. It's, it's a, and been killed. It's, you know, it's a mis- one terrible. You said that it was a good premise. I was struck when Stan McChrystal, um, after Obama fired him, um, uh, who was leading the NATO operations in Afghanistan, some number of months later, basically said that upon reflection that he thinks that basically the U.S. should have, after the attacks of 9-11, toured the world as the aggrieved party um, and spent basically a yes. year or yes. so building yes. an enormous coalition understanding what was at stake and delaying that first, you know, hit back reaction. Um, because A, you could have built the, you could have built the support to, uh, if you ultimately had to take military action, you would have had a, a kind of a much tighter, although the world was obviously behind the U.S. after hit, being hit on 9-11, but that you might have avoided some of these mistakes maybe. And I wonder whether the lesson, because because as the, as the report um suggest this is you know there are a lot of echoes here of the pentagon papers and of vietnam and so um that initial instinct that that to hit back um or to take military action seems to be a lesson that policymakers keep getting wrong um and and that seems to be the big um the big challenge here and i must say upon reading this i thought if you wanted to craft an argument for donald trump um, it would be pretty easy because you would say, you know, I wanted to get out of Afghanistan. I wanted to get out of these wars. And I keep being told well, there are all these reasons for why we have to stay. And it's basically yep. the end of the 18 years of reasons why we have to stay, which really doesn't work. And by the way, those of you who are co- saying I should, you know, stop breaking these norms and I should follow these procedures and do things the old way. Well, here's what the old way got us is 18 years of lies of i mean if you read the post report here and which is based on a thorough government report basically lies misdirection misunderstanding confusion which ain't just about um sort of public behavior and propriety this is about life and death of people and what do we have to show for it it seems to me this is the could be the heart of essentially the donald trump presidency and pitch yeah yeah i mean well blow it all up because and 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 yeah i'll shut up uh, the one thing that just I can't get past is the response in military times of uh, a couple of the current military leaders, including Joint Chiefs of Staff Army General Mark Milley. So he is this week telling reporters that he hadn't read all of the Afghanistan paper story yet, but he disagreed that the public had been manipulated and it's he's still saying it's going well. He's still saying we're making progress here, <sighs> even though he is one of the people in the Afghanistan papers who is hypercritical and talks about how it's going terribly. And this is all a bunch of lies. Like, how are we supposed to believe anything that comes out of the mouths of these military officials yes. when they just remain in lockstep and can't? Like acknowledge their their own sta- past statements, right? There's a there's this great collection of quotes in the papers of people saying we're making progress, just year after year after year. One of them made such an important point along the way that when everyone who comes before you says we fulfilled the mission, we're making progress, you can't be the person to say yes. the emperor has no clothes. You have to keep and- in in step with that set of false claims. And I should I should say that the. the- where president where this is breaks down as an argument for president trump is that he then falls susceptible to 
exactly what you just articulated, Emily. When when the president went to uh, Afghanistan on Thanksgiving, he said that the U.S. would not leave uh, until there was total victory. Well, no, he's never total victory. A, what does that mean? Right, he and meant B, capitulation. Yeah. <laughs> well, whatever. No, even if he meant. I mean, you read this, and and I could imagine lots of people reading all of this and saying, "Hey." Uh, capitulation is fine. Let's cut our losses right. because the way we the way we've been defining this previously has led to uh, what's what's recounted here in this incredibly damning co- collection. But but the but the president and is was doing when talking about total victory what you just described, Emily, and certainly what we what we encourage and reward in presidential campaigns, which is lots of displays of, you know, I'm gonna bomb the bleep out of ISIS and I'm gonna do this and do that. All of the all of the militarization of macho campaign rhetoric sets sets an expectation which then presidents have to fulfill once they get in office or be you know claimed to be weak um, and that that dynamic sets up the conditions that then leads it seems to me to a lot of what we read in this report I mean is this all about not having the draft anymore like yeah. most Americans are disengaged I mean there was some high yeah. percentage of people who didn't even know we were still fighting in Afghanistan I don't think I care and think enough about this and if my kids' lives were on the line, I would be paying a lot more attention. Right. Well, certainly a draft would have some of that impact. But there are only 13,000 troops in Afghanistan. And so that the chances that your child, in fact, would be going to Afghanistan are going to be very low. But but a draft in general does have the effect of, of distributing the emotional cost and pain to the whole population. I guess there's this part of me that doesn't understand what it would mean to have a recognition that what we really are doing is being a kind of long-term police presence. And this is a question I have about Syria, too. I'm not sure whether that's right. I'm completely not informed enough to make an assessment. But when, when there's no strategy and no sense of what the end is, if we were defining our presence differently, what kind of impact would that have? Okay, I just want to close, end this with making one other or 1.5 other points. I, I've often asked myself the question, which is what would have happened had we literally done nothing in response to 9-11? And I actually am convinced that the world would be a better place. If there had literally been no response, it would be better than the response that the world that we've created. Now, I know that's an, that's could never have happened and there the world would not have allowed it. Certainly what McChrystal described would have been better. But I actually think that literally having done nothing would have been better. But to continue on that, I wonder if one of the lessons of the Afghanistan papers is not that Afghanistan was the mistake, but that Iraq, the mistake of Iraq was what allowed Afghanistan to become such a never-ending mistake, is that that we distracted ourselves with Iraq. And you can only, there's a line in one of the Afghanistan papers where it says you can only fight one, you can only invade one country at a time. And we invaded Afghanistan and then we were like, well, that's going well, let's invade another country. And the Iraq war really for about seven years just became the preoccupation, even as we were continuing to fight this other low level, lower level conflict in Afghanistan. And Iraq got sort of resolved and more resolved uh, it's a more stable country, not because we did such a good job, but just because it's intrinsically a more stable country than Afghanistan is. And and it, allow- and it just meant that we didn't ever really focus on trying to get Afghanistan right or focusing on it or have the national attention focused on it the way it needed to be. So by the time people tuned into Afghanistan again, which was basically 2013 or so, 
you had 12 years of war and like no ideas what to do. And people are just like, oh, let's just keep going because no one has any better ideas. But that the Iraq distraction was the was necessary for it to continue as long as it did. That makes some sense. I mean, but didn't Barack Obama sort of claim Afghanistan as the war that he was going to go fight and win or at least like make things much better for people in Afghanistan? And it just seems like that was a failure. It was a failure. Do you think, either of you, that this will have the same impact as the Pentagon Papers, either on public trust in government or on the actual war fighting? I mean, the Pentagon Papers' real impact wasn't necessarily on the Vietnam War as much as it was on people's stop b- b- developing a greater mistrust for their government. Now they don't really trust the government anyway. So well, that's I'm not the sure thing is how much lower can the public approval of the government fall. Yeah. Um, and I also feel like this is where the draft missing makes a difference, that we're not going to see the same kind of just like wave of revulsion. Um, I mean, it took it took three years after the Pentagon Papers to get out of Vietnam, didn't it? Yeah. So well, did- I mean, yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, didn't, but we did start drawing down troops. I, yeah. I mean, right. It does not seem to me like it's going to be the same kind of cataclysmic event um, for those reasons. This comes out in the context of a presidential campaign, and it seems like, you know, the what Emily talked about earlier, the, the, this is what happens when you're president. You come in and there's all this policy that exists. And what do you do? And Barack Obama tried to get out of the nation building in, uh, um, pro- pro- program in Afghanistan. That's what he wanted to do when he came in. And then he ended up halting the withdrawal of troops and announced that he was going to leave thousands of American troops in the country indefinitely. And so that's this is what the this is what you have to wrestle with as a as a president and so we should a recognize that um and this goes back also to to uh the questions about president trump he's wrestling with all kinds of stuff we don't know anything about and so as this impeachment's going forward and people are making judgments about whether he when nobody's watching has us interests and the values we we would all like in a president Everybody should figure out what they think about that because there's a lot of stuff he's going to be doing that nobody's watching because of the way the presidency works. <clears throat> and that's true with this Pentagon – sorry, with the Afghanistan papers too. This should be the constant topic of conversation in the presidential campaign. And Pete Buttigieg should have some interesting things to say too since he served in Afghanistan. And yet we probably won't hear about it. I mean we certainly don't hear about it in presidential debates. Um, but this raises all kinds of questions. Um, and, and, and how do these candidates – answer those questions because they're going to face them when they get in office. So I wish this was a constant topic of conversation, but I think it'll just totally disappear. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are ignoring the Afghanistan war and chattering with your friends about something else, what will you be chattering about? John Dickerson. Well, I am going to be chattering about the depressing news of Greenland's ice sheet. So the losses in the ice sheet have septupled um, and are now in line basically with the highest sea level rise scenario. So why does this matter? Well, uh, Greenland is the second largest um, contributor to sea level rise. And what struck me about this finding from the ice sheet mass balance intercomparison exercise, known at home as the uh, IMBIE, 
not only is it show that sea level rise is, is, is increasing, and this matters, if you'll remember from November, the Venice flooding that happened. Uh, Venice floods, but what's happening now is it's flooding more and more frequently than before. And so you have this jewel of a city that is threatened with um, people there think, you know, ultimate extinction. So sea level rise, which added to the other effects of climate change, the weather, the winds, and so forth, creates issues for Venice and all coastal cities. But what struck me is that these findings were, they come out after the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which set a range of sea level rise. And this is at the high end. So not only is the sea level rising, but the guesses are basically wrong and they're wrong in the wrong way. In other words, you'd rather your guess be wildly over um, pessimistic and then have the reality come in under it. This is the opposite of that. And the, and what struck me is that Michael Oppenheimer, who's at um, Princeton, basically says that even if you did everything you could today, uh, which nobody is really doing in terms of mitigating the effects of climate change on sea level rise, it's kind of baked into 2050. So what's baked in basically and again, this is based on the old uh, assumptions, is that at 2050, 100-year floods, things that are supposed to happen only one every 100 years, will happen every year. So not only is the sea level uh, higher, but then when you have a flood, it will be that much more uh, egregious. And, and that's locked in now. Well, that finding was released this week. Emily, what is your chatter? Couldn't possibly be that gloomy. My chatter is about this really troubling set of facts that Justice Sonia Sotomayor called attention to this week. So in 2007, a court official in Louisiana for a state court of appeal committed suicide. And he said in his suicide note that part of what was troubling him so much was that the court he worked for had summarily denied appeals over 13 years filed by people who didn't have lawyers. So these are called pro se petitions when people represent themselves. And what bothered this man so much was that these dismissals were happening. Judges were signing off on them without so much as a glance at the underlying petitions or any review of the merits of the cases. And so we're talking about just like hundreds of petitions. And I... It's just so upsetting to think of that happening, and yet in some ways it's not surprising because there is this huge volume of these kinds of um, self-represented petitions being filed, especially by people in prison who have time on their hands and often have little or no access to lawyers to help them. And, you know, it's horrifying to think of just all of these petitions being judges signing off without paying attention. And obviously, like, that's bad. It's also a problem that I don't think we've really figured out how to address. And, you know, the underlying issue here is that some of these, many of these petitions have little chance of of, of the case winning. But some of them are about, like, factual claims of innocence and real issues. And Gideon, which is the 1960s case that established um, a right to a defense, to a lawyer, a defense lawyer, even if you can't afford one, that was like a pro se petition filed by someone like writing this handwritten letter, essentially. Um, so the idea that we've just, uh, we're allowing all of these um, petitions to just wash over the court system without any review and that it could lead to this kind of tragic event like a suicide, it's just really upsetting. Well, I'll be the brave sunshine. <laughs> Cheerier <today. laughs> member of the trio. My, my chatter is about a story in the New York Times 
headline, Finland is a capitalist paradise by oh, Anu yeah. Partinen Trevor and Corson. Trevor Corson. Yes. And it's a story of by this couple, a Brooklyn couple that moved back to Finland. Uh, anu Partinen is Finnish and they had a child. They moved back to Finland and, and then did a story about how great it is to live in Finland. We've all heard those stories. But moreover, how great it is to live in Finland and uh, how good it is for business. And the point points they make are that the high taxes, which seem like, oh, my God, socialist, you know, uh, confiscation of private property, actually take – have an incredibly useful social effect that actually helps the economy, which is that it takes the burden off companies to deal with things like health care and benefits and insurance and child care and education and, like, all the HR stuff that, that companies spend so much effort on and to focus on the things they need to do, which is be good businesses, and that the public goods of education and child care and parental leave and uh, infrastructure building are taken care by of the government by the government and that it, it turns out unleashes a kind of capitalism it takes away a lot of the insecurity that people feel that keeps them in jobs they don't want to stay in because that that's where their insurance is it keeps them from moving because they're worried about what will happen if they move and it allows a huge development of human capital because you have great schools and universities and just less anxiety and guarantees about healthcare and private talent flourishes and people are not because people are not panicking about all the hard stuff they have to do just to get through life and it's a very excellent piece and it puts the lie to that that claim often put up by conservatives that these countries are are uh, you know ruining free enterprise or ruining entrepreneurship in fact when you have a certain amount of security, entrepreneurship flourishes because you know that if it doesn't work out, you're still going to have health care and you're still, your kids are still going to be able to go to, to go to good schools. So uh, great piece. I went to school twice with Trevor Corson. <laughs> really? Mm -hmm. Wow. Elementary school and uh, high school. There you Clearly go. that's why he wrote yeah. such a good piece about Finland. Yes, I sure. think that's exactly right. Exactly right. He also has a great book on lobsters and sushi for those who are seeking the further readings uh okay is it called consider the lobster or no that's the david foster wallace book that would probably be that book <laughs> there are a lot of great listener chatters this week a lot of them a lot of them thank you for sending them to us at at slate Gabfest. and the one i'm going to call out is from ben armstrong ben says i hope you're all doing well which is nice my listener chatter this week is May listener chatters this week's Code Switch podcast by NPR, which includes a crazy and mostly forgotten story of the reverse freedom rides. And as Ben goes on to say, the year after the freedom rides of 1961, Southern segregationists tricked a whole bunch of African-Americans in the South into taking bus rides to the North, primarily to New England, to Hyannis, the Kennedy's hometown, with a promise that there would be jobs and housing waiting for them. Oh, and my God. It's an amazing, amazing episode. I knew nothing about it. And in fact, it, it kind of failed because the northern communities, like they weren't um, perfect, but they were very welcoming in general. And most of these families ended up resettling up in the north and were glad to be out of the segregated south. And it's, it's just an incredible episode. And I think it was on the order of 200 people ended up or 200 families ended up moving as part of this uh, reverse freedom ride program. There's a podcast about it, and then there's also an essay version. And Ben notes with full disclosure that his wife was the reporter on the story. So good job, Ben and uh, Gabrielle Emanuel. That's our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn 
Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Melissa Kaplan helped me here in D.C. Did Ryan McAvoy help you in New Haven, Emily? I bet he yes, did. Yes, he did. Thank you, Ryan. Did Alan Pang help you, John, at CBS? I bet he did. A constant and steady presence. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcast. June Thomas is managing producer. You should follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest. Tweet chatter to us there. And please come next week, Wednesday night, if you're near Oakland, California, will be the Fox Theater for our annual conundrum show. It'll be delightful. Slate.com slash live for tickets for Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson. I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? What's going on? I don't know. Not not sure. Anyway, Emily, uh, you've been doing a lot of reading about the <laughs> Semitism, the Semitism of the Trump administration. They have are they anti-Semitic? Are they philo-Semitic? Are they both? What is the form of anti-Semitism? Trump said these incredible, outrageous things to a Jewish audience about how they had to vote for him because they were. Jews in real estate, and they were killers, and they didn't like him. But what they were going to vote for Democrats because they'd lose money. Yeah, uh, it was just they were the most... what the wealth tax was going to yeah. force them. Yeah, almost many, many of them, the vast majority, do vote for Democrats who raise mm. their taxes and have for generations. Yeah, I mean, this is such a split screen administration about Jews and Judaism. On the one hand, you have. Yeah, anti-Semitism from the president that is affirming the most corrosive, damaging stereotype about Jews. And you have Jews in the administration who are among its um, most diabolical figures, right? I mean, Stephen Miller is Jewish and is the descendant of Holocaust survivors and yet is an architect of of the Trumpian immigration policy that has been so cruel to so many uh, would-be refugees and other migrants. And then you have the kind of spectacle of Jared Kushner, who is Jewish, married, of course, to uh, Ivanka Trump, who's converted to Judaism. And he has been pushing for a long time for greater protections for college students who feel like they are victims of anti-Semitism. And so the Trump administration put out with great fanfare an executive order. It doesn't actually do that much in the end, but the reporting about it was really confusing. It sounds like probably some Trump officials uh, described it inaccurately. And so the initial wave of coverage made it sound like the Trump's the Trump administration had redefined Jews as a race or a nation unto themselves, which caused lots of outraged Jews on Twitter to tweet that they are Americans uh, and they want that to be their national identity. And really what happened was not such a big deal. Basically, the Trump administration said that under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, if Jews were targeted for reasons of national origin or race, meaning other people saw them that way, they would have protections against discrimination of the same ones that already go to groups like Hindus and Sikhs and Muslims. The bad part of this order, in my view, has to do with the very broad definition of anti-Semitism, where effectively examples include opposition to Israel that is very much covered by free speech. 
And in an op-ed in the New York Times this week, Jared Kushner said anti-Semitism is the same thing as anti-Zionism. And that is just a really problematic position. People have to be able to oppose Israel's policies and not have that necessarily be treated as anti-Semitic. It is true that some people who oppose Israel then blur their opposition into being anti-Semitic. And it's true that that was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.